Good morning, everyone. If this is your first Sunday here, welcome. That's great. It's my first Sunday here, too. So that worked out good. (laughs) My name is uh, Brian Counts, and um, I'm not one of the pastors here, but I'm friends with the pastor here. I'm not Vince Hoppy. I'm not his stunt look-alike. Vince and I don't look a lot alike. Um, Vince is off for the week, and I am one of the staff guys at Village 7, and so thankful to be here. I've known about Grace and Peace for years, before it was even a thing. We prayed for it before Vince and his family ever came, and so it's my first time here, like I said, so it's such a blessing to be able to see the fruit of all that work and all that prayer, and to see all of you here, and chipping in, and becoming a church, and becoming a family, and it's just so great to see. Now, since it is my first time here, I get to have a lot of conversations with those of you that I don't know, and it's good to see a lot of old friends here too, but I get to have a lot of conversations with people for the first time, and when we meet someone, we always have the same kind of conversational kind of tactics, right? You say, are you from here? What do you do? How long have you been here? Where are you from? Are you single? Are you married? Do you have kids? And for the last two years... Whenever I get to the kids question and I answer it, people laugh at me (laughs) because I say I have a 16-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, so far so good, and a 2-year-old. And that's when they all chuckle. They're like, ha ha, (laughs) you got a bonus. Yes, we did. And so we are reliving in our household what it's like to have a two-year-old, which honestly we don't remember the first time because we had three, three and under. So when they were all two years old, I don't remember anything. So I'm learning for the first time, it feels like, how to have a two-year-old. And if you're around two-year-olds, you know their favorite word, mine. (laughs) Yeah, no or mine, I heard both. (laughs) It's a close call. I'm going to go with mine for the sake of the sermon or it won't make sense. Their favorite word is mine. And our two-year-old has learned this word and learned it well. And it reminds me of the old joke poem called The Toddler's Approach to Property Law. (laughs) And it goes like this. If I like it, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a while ago, it's mine. If I say it's mine, it's mine. If it looks like mine it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you're having fun with it, it's mine. If you lay it down, it's mine. And if it's broken, it's yours. (laughs) So that's how two-year-olds approach life and possessions and ownership. And I would like to say that that ends when they outgrow the two-year-old stage. It doesn't, does it? We just get more savvy with it. We continue on in that vein, well into adulthood and all the way till God calls us home in that mode of, I have to have it. And what I want to talk with us about this morning is this emotion, feeling, approach to life that's all too common for me, and I imagine for everyone in this room to some degree, this approach of being discontent, discontentment which I think can be defined like this. Discontentment is, I need more than I need to be happy, to be satisfied, to be at peace. I need more than I need. I think I need 
more than I actually need to be happy, to be satisfied, to be at peace. And I think, like I said, it shows up in every life in this room, whether we're Christian or not, whether we're convinced or unconvinced, young or old, walking with the Lord or not, it doesn't matter. I think all of us approach this life with this feeling of discontentment, grabbing for what we think we need, but don't actually need to be happy, satisfied, or at peace. And it's actually a really dangerous condition to live with. It's a really destructive condition to live with because it drives us internally first, but then it drives us in our behavior, in our decisions, in what we do. It drives our relationships in so many things. So we need the help of the passage that we just heard read because it has a solution for us so that we don't live under the damaging and destructive, corrosive effects of discontentment. So I want to give us two points this morning. First, I want to look at the danger of discontentment, and then I want to look at the gain of contentment. So first, the danger of discontentment. Now, Paul says in verse 9 that those who desire to be rich are in danger. Those who desire to be rich. And you might say, oh, good, that's not me. I don't have to be a billionaire. I don't want a yacht. I don't want six houses. I don't need all that stuff. I don't have to have millions and millions and millions of dollars, so I don't desire to be rich. We're thinking rich means the 1%. And that's maybe not what you desire to have or be, so you think, oh, good. Maybe I can even be a little bit self-righteous about that, that I don't have to be one of those super rich. But I would guess that while we might not want to be super rich, we all dream about having more money. Maybe just a little bit more than you have. Maybe just enough so that you can retire when you're 65. Maybe you don't have to have a Bentley, but when your car breaks down, you feel a little bit gypped that you can't get a newer one with a warranty that you don't have to pay to keep getting fixed. If I just had a little more money, I could cover that. Or maybe you think, if I just had a little bit more money, I could get into a house with more space, or I could fix up the one I've got that's so outdated or broken down or whatever. You see, I think the desire to go one step beyond where you are is just as much sometimes the desire to be rich as the desire to be a billionaire. That desire to be one step past where you are so that You don't have to worry. If I spend a little here, I don't have to worry about not having enough for this other thing. So I can fund the retirement or the college expenses or the house or the vacations or what it is. I just don't want everything. I just want a little bit more than I have. And I think if you had to think which desire is more destructive, the desire to be super rich or the desire to have just a little bit more I think we could see the desire to have just a little bit more is actually more destructive because it's more attainable. It's right there at our fingertips. And Paul says, those who desire to be rich are in danger. Maybe you're still thinking, no, I just, I don't care about money. I don't need more money. I'm good. Maybe you don't dream about more money, but do you dream about the next great experience? And that could be, man, we're going out to the restaurant and we are going to eat that food, and it's going to be amazing, but I can't afford it, so we can't do that. So it could be that simple, or it could be the next great vacation or the next great adventure, 
or maybe the gear to get you that adventure. Maybe that's what turns your crank. This is Colorado after all. We dream of the right gear. We have the right gear. We pride ourselves on the right gear. Maybe it's that experience, not money, that you long for. Or maybe it's your looks that you're not satisfied with. You look in the mirror and say, man, if I could change my clothes, if I could change my face, my hair, my appearance, my body, whatever. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's time that you dream about. And if I had more, I could pay people to do all this stuff for me so I'd have more time. Maybe it's comfort or entertainment or toys. Of all those things, do you know how you get them? Money. And if you're saying, I don't desire to be rich, I desire something else, but those things that you desire are gotten with money, I'd argue there's little difference between the desire to be rich just for money's sake or the desire to have those things that money can buy you. Or maybe you think, no, I live simply, I don't spend much, stick to my budget, I don't buy anything until the old thing is completely worn out or broken, I'm super frugal. But you know what drives that frugality sometimes? The desire to be rich. So what I'm trying to say is this desire to be rich that Paul warns us about is subtle. And it's in far more places, in far more nooks and crannies of our hearts than we realize that it might be. So I ask myself this morning, I ask you, where are you discontent? Where do you not have enough? Where do you think you need more? That could be your bank account. That could be your next great experience. Or it could be all those things that we mentioned. Where are you discontent? Would you be content if you had less? As long as you had food, clothing, and shelter like Paul talks about. And those words that he used, food and clothing, that actually encompasses shelter also in the original language. So as long as you have food and clothing and shelter, would you be content or do you need more. Do you need more than you need to be happy, satisfied, or at peace? Now, when I talk about all this, I know for some you're realizing, yeah, that's me. Maybe most of us are realizing, yeah, that's me. And I want to bring this up to you. I want to show this to you with all kinds of compassion. Because you and I are living in a day and time when I think we can make the argument, it's harder to be content than at any other time in human history. Because you and I are exposed to all the things, all the time, and we're exposed to people enjoying those things all the time, whether that's in advertising or social media. I mean, let's not think for a minute that you and I can live in a day and time when there are more people who have more training and more experience and more ways of marketing and advertising to us, pulling on tried and true levers to make us discontent Let's not think that doesn't impact us. You might not realize how much it actually shapes you and shapes what you want and shapes your desires. There was many years ago when I lived in the Southeast, I had to go to the world of Coke. You ever heard of the world of Coke? If you've ever been in the Southeast, in Atlanta, Georgia, you've heard of the world of Coke, which is basically a museum of Coke throughout its hundred whatever year are more history. And since it's a museum of Coke, it's actually a museum of the history of Coke's advertising. So you pay them a bunch of money so you can look at their advertising for several hours. And now I went there, I liked Coke, it was fine. I liked Sprite, I liked 
Dr. Pepper. You ask me, which one do you prefer? I'm like, it's all good. So a few months after I'm there, I realize, man, I'd love to have a Coke right now. Coke would be so good. So hot, thirsty. Coke, man, would hit the spot. And I thought, wait, it, I never thought that before. Where did that come from? And I realized I've been thinking that for months. And I thought, when did that start? Oh, of course, you dummy. It was the day you paid money to go and look at advertisements for a few hours. And you know what? Coke has a lot of money. Coke hires really good advertising people. And you know what? They're good. It works. And it works without you knowing it. And if that's true, it got me thinking, man, in what other places of my life and my desires and my decisions, is it driven by all these outside sources of marketing and advertising, social media? All these things are designed to make you discontent. They're designed to promote this idea that if you buy, therefore you are, right? Isn't that the message so often? I buy, therefore I am. And as simple as you want to make your life and as much as you want to reject possessions and riches, it's a constant input stream that we have to at least realize affects us and impacts us. So I wonder how are you impacted? What are you desiring? What are you thinking about getting next? And how is that driven by the advertisements or social media or marketing that you see? So we all have to pay attention to Paul's warning about those who desire to be rich, especially in our day and time. But you might ask, okay, great. Really, of all the problems in the world, is this one really that bad? So I want some things I'm never going to be able to afford. What's so dangerous? What's the big deal about that? Well, first, we can just say being discontent is no fun, is it? Of the seven deadly sins, someone once said, this is the only one that's no fun. (laughs) At least the others, you're going to get a little short-term pleasure out of it. But there's no short-term or long-term pleasure in being discontent. It's not fun to miss what's right in front of you, pining away for what you don't have. But it's far worse than just not being any fun. If you have your Bible open, look back at verses 9 and 10. I'll read them again in case you don't. That's fine. Verse 9, like we said, those who desire to be rich, it says, fall into temptation and a snare. How does discontentment, the desire to be rich, drive us to temptation and a snare? What Paul is saying is discontentment is like a gateway drug to all other kinds of destructive behaviors and sins. Because Think with me about the destructive behaviors that we human beings can find ourselves doing and which ones, to some degree or another, don't have discontentment at their source and at their root. They all do. Discontentment might seem like it's no big deal, but it's behind so many worse things like envy, like stealing, like lying, like compromising relationships and using people. It's behind the readiness to sacrifice being the right kind of person just to get the right kind of things. So discontentment leads us to temptation. Temptation leads us to destructive behaviors and sin 
which ruin ourselves and our relationships and our communities so much. Discontentment is the gateway drug. And then verse 9 gets even more stark. It says that those who desire to be rich fall into senseless and harmful desires. Discontentment leads you to worse desires, those that are senseless and harmful. Senseless means when are we going to wake up to the fact that just getting the next thing isn't going to make us happy? Because we've all lived long enough, even if you're only 10 years old, you've lived long enough to know you really wanted something. And if I just get that thing, I'll never want anything else. I'll be happy always and forever. My life will be complete and I will be whole. And then you get that thing, and it, it worked for like a day, you know, maybe a week, and then you start wanting the next thing. When is that going to help? That's a senseless desire, but we keep going back to it, that it's going to make us happy. This next hit is going to be the hit that lasts forever. And it brings us to harmful desires. It says that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And that goes back to that gateway drug idea that it plunges us into ruin and destruction. We think getting more money, getting more things will protect us from ruin and destruction. But it's actually the desire for more and more that leads us to that ruin and destruction. So it's a spiritual danger because of the temptation it leads us to. It's emotional pain. And then verse 10 says it leads us to spiritual destruction as well. It says, through this craving, many have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So discontentment, y'all, is a big deal. The discontent in your life might seem small and harmless, but Paul says it leads to so much destruction and pain. And the scary thing is, it doesn't happen all of a sudden like a hurricane or an earthquake. It happens like rust. Rust works slowly and silently and over the long term. And rust can destroy the largest, most uh, impressive things that mankind can build. And you won't ever hear it, you won't ever see it until it's too late. And that's how discontentment works. It's corrosive, working behind the scenes. That's why Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, he says, take care and be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I feel like sometimes if I can just get that one verse in my heart, I'll be set. Take care and be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness because your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And you see, it's so dangerous because it's going to eventually drive what we do. And you have to understand that what you do is driven by what you want. And what you want is driven by your view of the good life. What is a beautiful life? What is a worthy life? A good life. And this is where our discontentment can actually be a wonderful guide that we need to pay attention to. Because what are you discontent about? And answering that can show you what is your idea of the good life. And that can expose the lie behind the lie behind the action. You need to know what is your vision of the good life. And does it stand up? Is it actually a beautiful life? Because if we're going to change our discontentment, we have to change our desires. 
And if you're gonna change your desire, you have to know what your vision of the good life is and work back from there. So that leads us then to our second point, then what is the gain of contentment? How do we change these desires? Because to experience this gain, you gotta go back with me to verse six, where Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And by godliness, someone said that word means the knowledge of Jesus Christ in the mind and heart worked out in all the areas of life. The knowledge of Jesus Christ in the mind and heart worked out in all the areas of life. In other words, the really, actually good and true and beautiful life. Because that means you take the knowledge of God, that there is a God who made you, who knows you, who loves you and wants you, and has sent his own son to die on the cross for you, to pay the penalty that you and I could not pay, so that only by our faith in him, we can know him, experience him, live for him forever. You take that knowledge of God, of his love and grace, and you work that out into all the areas of your life, that's the good life. That's a beautiful life, right? And so then to understand how that's a beautiful life, you've got to understand what Paul meant then by this word contentment that we've been using. Because it was a common word in his day and time, but it's not that common in the Bible. In Paul's day and time, this was a word used by the Stoics. And they taught that you wanted to not allow yourself to be controlled either by the desire for pleasure or the fear of pain. You wanted to be independent of external circumstances. Whether they were good or bad, you were going to be a stoic. It wasn't going to change you or affect you. And they taught that the power to do that, which would take a tremendous amount of power if you think about it, the power to do that, they said, comes from inside yourself. Look inside yourself for the power to be free of the desire for pleasure or the fear of pain, which in many ways is similar to what you and I hear all the time around us. Do you need strength? Do you need peace? Do you need direction? Where does it come from, do we hear? Inside ourselves, just like the Stoics taught. Now that's the word Paul uses here, but that's not the way Paul means it. He's doing a really cool thing where he takes a common word that they would have understood, but actually infuses it with new meaning and flips it on its ear. Because Paul isn't talking about looking inside yourself to be content. He's saying you don't look to yourself, but you look to Jesus. Because Paul knew what we all know when we're honest. It's hard for us to admit, but when we're honest, all of us know it that in and of ourselves, we don't have the resources to handle the internal challenges of life. And by internal, I mean things like that gnawing sense of guilt that we all have over something we've said or done or not done. An internal challenge maybe of shame, where you feel like something was done to me that's so unspeakable, or I did something in secret that's so unspeakable that if everybody else knew about it, I would be ostracized or that internal sense of pride or selfishness. You and I, if we're honest, we don't have the resources to fight that on our own. 
the internal challenges. Paul's also saying something we all also know when we're honest, that we don't have the resources in and of ourselves, do we, to handle the external challenges of life either. And that can mean the sudden job loss. That can mean the sudden money loss when the market crashes. That can mean grief when it comes. That can mean betrayal of friendships, things that happen outside of us that in and of ourselves we don't have the resources to handle. Now, we live most of our lives like we can handle it. I got this. All the external challenges, all the internal challenges, I got this. But this is a safe place, and we'll all just go ahead and admit what in our honest moments we know to be true, that we can't handle that. So when Paul is using this word, he's using it like he means it in one other place in the Bible where he uses it. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, he says this. Listen, it's such a great verse. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all things at all times, you have all that you need and will abound in every good work. Now, we don't translate this word contentment in that verse. That's why you didn't hear it. We translate it, having all that you need. Godliness with having all that you need is great gain. And this is the great news about the Bible's message of the gospel and of grace, is that in Jesus, we have all that we need. We have all that we need. Not all that we think we need, but in Jesus, we have all that we need. All that we need to handle those internal challenges that we talked about. Because Jesus died on the cross to take our guilt and give us acceptance with God, which handles that shame that we talked about. It handles that internal drive to be number one, to run people over. Because we have a Savior who did not run us over, but he humbled himself In Jesus, we have what we need to handle the external challenges of life also, so that when life pulls the rug out from under you, you know that there is a God behind it who's in charge of it, who hasn't let you go, who holds you in the palm of his hand, and yes, it hurts like crazy. I'm not saying in being content and you can handle the external challenges of life that nothing will ever hurt you. Actually, what it allows you to do is to hurt well. Because if you don't have Jesus and the rug gets pulled out from under you, you have to ignore it, minimize it, distract yourself. But when he can and he does hold you, when those external challenges come, it hurts like crazy, but you know eventually God's got this. It allows you to be honest with those external challenges of life. It also allows you to really be happy and to enjoy the good things that come. The Stoic just says, I disconnect myself from the bad and the good. I am an island. And neither one of that is what we want to be, is it? We want to be able to really hurt and hurt well over hurtful things and move through them, and we want to be able to engage with the good things as well. So this is what Paul means when he says, godliness with contentment, having all that you need. The knowledge of Jesus Christ, godliness, worked out in all the parts and pieces of life with all that you need, that is, he says, great gain. Because now we're free from just the misery of being discontent. 
We don't have to have all these things we thought we had. And we have a protection from all the temptations that discontentment can bring because we don't have to go there. We don't need those things anymore. And it also, interestingly, brings us real ambition. Someone might say, well, think of all the good that comes from discontentment, all the wonderful things that people build and do because they're discontent. But real contentment isn't going to take that away. You're just going to do all those things for the right reason, for the good of others, not yourself, for the glory of God, not yourself. So it brings us great gain. It brings us that true and good and beautiful life to have all that you need in Jesus. But then how do we live like that? That sounds great. How do I actually get those new desires? Well, one, we need an eternal perspective like Paul talks about in verses seven and eight when he says, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. That's not a newsflash to any of us. Whenever you have a friend who has a baby and they tell you about the baby, they don't tell you about all the baby owns, do they? And this baby came out super rich. It was awesome. <laughs> we know babies bring nothing into the world. And we know that when we die, we don't take anything out of the world. You know, sometimes when a wealthy person passes away, they'll ask, how much did he or she leave behind? And you know what the answer is? Everything. They left it all behind. We know that, but it's a stubborn fact to get into our desires and our decisions both. Take the richest man or woman you've ever even dreamed of. And you know what they come into the world with? Nothing. And you know what they leave the world with? Nothing. And you know all those things that you really, really want and think will make you happy? Do you know how long they're going to last? Just a second and they're gone. And we have to have that perspective to begin to untangle our desires from all these things that we think we have to have. Not only do we need that eternal perspective, which we already know, but we can't seem to hold on to, we also need thanksgiving. You see, thanksgiving is the means and contentment is the end. Thanksgiving is the means and contentment is the end. And it is hard to keep a thankful heart when we're constantly bombarded with all those images and all those advertisements and all those happy, beautiful people enjoying all those things that we don't have. And that if only we had them, we'd be fine, right? We're bombarded by those things, and it's hard to keep that quiet spirit of thankfulness. Because like I said, we are surrounded by all those advertisements and media. I want you to become, I want myself to become, a more savvy consumer of all those things. Instead of just passively receiving them, actually critique them. Talk with each other. Talk with your kids. Hey, what is the message of that last ad? What is it really trying to sell me? And how is it saying I'm going to get that thing? Learn to expose all these things. Maybe it's spending less time on social media because there's more and more studies coming out about the effects of social media the longer we have it and use it. And do you know what absolutely none of them have said social media does for you? Make you more grateful. That is just one thing it's never going to do. It's never going to make you more grateful for what you already have. So we need this thanksgiving. And do you know how you become thankful? You offer thanks. It's just that simple. You have to actually spend time doing it. All the time that we spend lusting after those things we don't have, 
begin to redeem some of that time by being grateful. Sometimes, I've tried this a few times, and it's really hard. I'm going to go for a walk. Sometimes I walk to work. It's a 20-minute walk. And I'm going to try to do nothing but be thankful. Right? Instead of just letting my thoughts go wherever they will, I'm just going to remember things I'm thankful for. For only 20 minutes, y'all, it's hard. (laughs) But only because we're not used to it. Only because we're not used to it. So the more time we actually spend being thankful for our spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus and the physical blessings that he's given us, the more and more we're going to find ourselves being content and free from all of the uh, bondage that discontentment brings us. So I don't know where each one of you are with discontentment, but I know it's an issue for all of us. I know some of you really, really need this because I imagine for some of us, the discontentment we experience is very painful. It's actually driving you maybe to depression, maybe driving you away from others. And so what I want to encourage you with, whether it's a small struggle or a big struggle in your life, that progress with this is really possible with Jesus. There's a passage in the book of of, um, Philippians chapter 4 where Paul says he's learned the secret of being content, which tells you at one time Paul didn't know it, but then he did, which means we can as well. And he says, I can do all things through Jesus who gives me strength. And in that passage, the all things he can do through Jesus is being content. You and I can be content in Jesus because as someone once said, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. The secret to being content is not changing our circumstances, but it's going back to what we have in Jesus and having all that we need in him to face the internal challenges of our lives, our sin, our guilt, our shame, and the external challenges as well. So spend some time, I encourage you, thanking God this week for what he's done, what he's doing, what he will do, examining your heart, saying, what is it I really want? What is it I really need? And what is it that I already have in Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is progress and freedom from the pain of discontentment. Lord, we confess to you that all of us are there to greater or lesser degree at different times in our lives. Father, we are grateful that everything that we ultimately need is ours for free in Jesus. And we thank you for how this meal of faith that we're about to have points us to that. We thank you that Jesus' body and blood provides what we need, and we thank you now that as we receive this bread and drink this cup by faith, you actually really meet with us and strengthen us. And so we thank you for that in Jesus' name, and we ask it in his name. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. As we come to this communion, this participation, this fellowship with Jesus, this meal with Him this morning, you're going to come forward toward the center. And you all who are regulars know this routine far better than I. But I think you come through one of these two aisles on the side. You'll file up here, 
If you need gluten-free, it's here on the table. And if you want grape juice, it's on the outer ring of the tray. If you want wine, it's on the inside of the tray. But we're not just coming to some bread and some wine this morning. We're coming to Christ's body and blood to remember him, Jesus says. He says, do this in memory of me. Because we do forget so easily, like we said during the sermon. But we're not just here to jog our memory, as important and needed as that is. We're here, as we said, to really and spiritually commune with Jesus as we receive this by faith, this means of grace to find strength, to be content in him. So this morning I want to invite everyone who's trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and as part of a gospel preaching and believing church to come and receive him because it's a family meal for faith. Now, I hope this morning there are some here who haven't yet decided to put their faith in Jesus. And if that's the case, we're so glad that you're here. And we would encourage you to take this time to reflect and to even seek the Lord to pray and ask him to show you himself. So this is a feast of faith. So let's proclaim our faith as signed and sealed in this sacrament. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Hear these words of institution from 1 Corinthians. Paul says, For I received from the Lord Jesus what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and he gave thanks for this as well. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, as we come to receive this meal that you have given to us, that you have made for us, we are grateful. And we pray that you would increase our gratefulness. We pray that we would receive what you give, your body and your blood, this bread and this wine, and that it would fill us. And that we would know that in you, we have all we need. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.